welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi everyone, Kelly Deutsch here and welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust. Today I have joining me 12-step aficionado, Carl Thienis. And Carl is a published poet, he's seven years sober, former blogger, father of four, and an amateur theologian. He's passionate about transformation, healing, and being a Christ follower. Now, the 12 steps have been called the greatest American contribution to spirituality today. So today I wanted to talk with Carl about how the 12 steps can contribute to your spiritual growth, even if you wouldn't necessarily consider yourself an addict. I also want to hear a bit about Carl's story, um, how he came to the 12 steps and why he's so passionate about them today. So Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kelly. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we dive into your story, Carl, I'm curious how you would define maybe in a sentence or two, what the 12 steps are like are they you know a recovery technique are they a philosophy what words would you use to describe that yeah, that's a good question um you know probably my answer fundamentally would be they are a mystery hmm. um because most people who come into the program one degree or another uh, well they come in limping and broken and um usually the, it's the last place they ever wanted to be and the last place they tried um, before they got sober. <clears throat> um, and inevitably what happens is that, you know, you look at the 12 steps that are posted on the board of most rooms or in the book, in the big book. And, um, you know, your first reaction is some sort of, uh, bewilderment essentially of like doing these is going to get me sober after all the other things that I've tried and all of the different ways that I've either tried to evade what's been happening um, in my life or directly trying to confront it in my own way. Um, and so they, they just seem impenetrable. They seem strange. Um, they're daunting for sure, especially as you get into the meat of them. Um, and so, so yeah, they're, they're really a mystery as to how many millions of people now have been helped. Um, and miraculously. So in many cases from addictions of all kinds, not just alcohol, though alcohol obviously is the, the way the program initially started. Um, but like you said, you know, it's really a program of, of just transformation in general. Um, and it really does apply, um, to the alcoholic, but to really anybody who's suffering from, um, you know, participating in a life that's not in their best interest, um, who is feeling trapped and, and maybe, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, persecuted by the, their own choices um, and by the dual nature of what happens to you when you become an addict. Mm -hmm. Whereas St. Paul says, you know, I'm doing the things that I don't want to do and I'm not doing the things that I want to. And, um, you know, there, there's a real kind of diabolical element to addiction. Um, in that sense of, you know, diabolos, the Greek word that means to tear apart or to tear asunder. Um, the, the human person who becomes an addict or who is an addict, maybe by definition, um, is somebody who is, uh, you know, double-minded. They're, they're torn apart. Um, and, you know, the addict in the traditional sense of the alcoholic or the drug addict, um, you know, really is just somebody who's on the front lines in a very visible way uh, exhibiting the, the, um, the suffering, you know, that the human person in general has to endure in this world which is, you know, do I follow mammon or God? Do I follow my own desires or my higher powers? Um, you know, and how do I, how, is there a way to integrate the things of my life in a way that is not only good for me, but good for you and then good for society? Mm. Um, and so the 12 steps, you know, again, seem to be in many ways, a miraculous way of, um, of you know, moving towards that end. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned how, um, most people who find the 12 steps usually find it, you know, kicking and screaming or because they fell face first <laughs> into the dirt. <laughs> yes. um, so I'm curious if you would share a little bit of your story and how you came to the 12 steps and if you came to them willingly or how that came about. Yeah. Um, well, so, 
you know, it, I, you know, I probably lucked out in some ways because of my, my religious background, my Christian faith, um, even before I became a real active alcoholic. Um, so I was, I'm one of the rare people who, when I finally came into the rooms, I, I sort of knew intuitively that the steps would work, um, you know, giving, giving up of my own will, trusting in a higher power to bring me to sanity, um, making amends, asking for forgiveness, being conscious of my actions and, and, you know, all of those things, right. Are kind of part of the overall Christian tradition. Um, and so they weren't foreign to me. Um, so that was a blessing, quite frankly. Um, and I also came into the program ready to actually do the work. And hmm. that doesn't always happen. You know, some people take their time. And I think like anything, right, whether it's a church or a religion or a exercise practice, anything, right, that you that part of you really wants to devote yourself to. There's a part of you that wants to do it on a part of you that doesn't. Um, and the part of you that wants to do it has to win out. And it might be 51, 49, you know, percent in terms of that struggle, or it might be 80, 20 or 90, 10. Um, but, you know, it's so for me, I, I had some blessings. I had some wind behind my sails when I got into the rooms, um, which was nice because one of the things that you find out very quickly with anything, right, that takes work um, and that's really worth doing is that there's always a honeymoon period um, where God seems to protect you, but maybe reward you in some ways for making a positive choice for the good, right? And so he puts those wind behind your sails and you, you find, you meet people and you make progress and things feel good at the very beginning. Um, but, uh, you know, inevitably, right. The real work is after that where mm -hmm. things aren't quite so easy and whether it's the, uh, you know, monotony of going to a yet another meeting, right. Cause there's always the voice that tells you, oh, you don't need another one. Why, why have you gone to so many, maybe even your family is telling you, putting pressure on you, you know, keep, I thought you were done with this. Aren't you done? Right. So there's a lot of like temptations to abort, you know, the, the program and to abort the work that you're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, but in terms of my story. Um, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I've always had a love kind of love, hate, mostly love relationship with alcohol. I, um, I, you know, grew up around it, but not in a toxic way. My parents were, were drinkers, but not in a super heavy way. Um, we appreciated it. And from a, even a Eucharistic perspective, wine was, as the Psalms say, makes glad the heart of man. Right. And it was seen that way in our family. And so I, um, again, in a rare sort of way, had a, a somewhat positive relationship with alcohol. Um, just at the macro level or the family level, which is, uh, which was nice. Cause I didn't, you know, grow up in an abusive scenario, um, at least in terms of alcohol, but, um, you know, like anything in life, right. Your, the sins of your, you know, that you're not dealing with and the fears that you have that you're not acknowledging, um, and just the, the turmoil of life as it proceeds you, if you're not doing your shadow work and if you're not, um, engaged with really appreciating and quite frankly, forgiving yourself for being who you are. In the present moment you know if you're not doing that there's going to be the things of this world um that are going to tempt you to take shortcuts and you know i think taking shortcuts is the sort of one of the hallmark uh signs of an addict and again maybe a sign of the human person in general is that we um, are afraid of doing the work that god calls us to and sometimes rightly so because the work is brutally difficult and extremely excruciating and like um uh, like Eustace and C.S. Lewis and the, um, you know, when he has the dragon scales pulled off of him, right, one at a time by Athlan, it's like, or or even in uh, The Great Divorce where the lizard is taken off of the shoulder of the man, like the, the work that we have to do to give up our our passions and our ego, and um, it's not fun. And so no, there's no wonder that we run away from it. Um, and we all have different ways of running away, right, and different times and places that we do that running. Um, and so for me, you know, uh, back <clears throat> what is now, well, I'm sober seven years now, and my heavy drinking started probably three years before that. Um, that was my way of, you know, of coping or of not, or of not coping. Um, you know, a glass of wine with dinner turned into two, which turned into three, you know, over time. Right. And it wasn't, it didn't just, you know, I didn't just explode into alcoholism. It was something that I gradually uh, fell into like a frog in the hot water, uh, you know, the frog in the pot story. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And, and, you know, the justifications that I came up with of defending, you know, is that, well, I'm an aficionado, aficionado of wine, or it's just two glasses with dinner. And like, the, I always had a way of just making sure that I was always okay with whatever I was doing. Um, and how clever, right, of the ego to always already in advance have a way of, <laughs> of uh, protecting you in some ways, maybe from your bad choices. But, um, you know, and I had people around me, friends and family that were slowly getting more and more concerned. Um, you know, and they'd make a comment or two every now and then. And of course, I would brush them off. Um, and then as these things go, you know, 
as you know, from, even just in general, from a you know the theological perspective, is that sin. One of the insidious natures of sin is that it promises so much and delivers so little. And the addict is somebody who really understands that at the end, uh, what maybe used to give you some comfort or courage, or a simulacra of some virtue, right, betrays you. It really does betray you at the end, because all it gives you usually is the misery and the hangovers and the shame and the turmoil in your family and just you know the host of, of destruction that that path um you know usually brings and it doesn't usually bring any more the, the good things that you thought it either could or should um and i you know i have to admit i even you know seven and not that i've been sober for very long seven years is not very long from a you know addiction recovery kind of pro, you know, program perspective and it's important always to note that it truly is just one day at a time um and you're never done right you're 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 an alcoholic for life even if you're sober um and um but anyway so in terms of my story i you know the three glasses of wine a night turned into four and which turned into a bottle before i get home which turned into you know a whole host of lies and manipulation and you know every every addict has their story of how insane truly they become about um you know what i almost like to call is like their mistress you know it's like this secret life that you're living whereas the disease becomes a deeper and deeper part of your psyche and your soul and really and your body it affects everything every part of you um it gets the lie that you're living gets its tendrils into actually almost everything about you hmm. uh, and you know i will you know it's hard almost now for me sometimes to look back although it's important to do so um and to remember who i was when i was doing those things you know driving you know my nieces and nephews around when i was drunk and you know, there's just so many things, right, that the addict does, uh, choices that they make that endanger themselves and the lives of others that are very shameful and very, um, you know, very tragic. Um, so, so anyway, so that process continued. And, you know, one of the things I learned is, you know, a truism of the spiritual life, which is that things that can't go on don't. And at some point, right, in every story, there's a point at which the madness ends. And quite frankly, I think it's because God just eventually has mercy, mercy on us and saves us from some of our own choices. Now, that isn't always the case, right? Sometimes very, very tragic things happen and people can resist that grace for what seems like an eternity. But um, something, you know, miraculous in some ways happened to me where um, I had had enough to drink one night in the summer of 2014 to probably kill me, at least scientifically. Um, and I had always been very careful about how I hid the alcohol and the protocols that I had to make sure I wasn't get what it wasn't getting caught, and all of just all of that silliness, right? Trying to protect my 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 addiction, um, and for some reason I didn't follow any of them. I left all the doors open and the drawers open and the secret cubby holes all just available for anyone to see. And that summer I had really convinced myself that I probably was going to drink myself to death. And I sort of had a pact with God that uh, that was what was going to happen unless he decided to step in, um, almost like Gideon's fleece, but maybe in a, in a reverse or much darker sort of way, right? I kind of, I threw the gauntlet down a little bit and said, I can't stop what I'm doing. I can't stop anymore. And <clears throat> there's nothing quite so despairing than to realize that your own choices um, have trapped you mm -hmm. and that there's no way, there seems to be no way out, right? Um, so anyway, so I think my leaving out all the, the hiding places was my like, my, and this is, I did this blackout drunk too, so I have no you know real memory of this, but um, I was told, it was told to me later what the scenario was uh, by the people who were there who um, witnessed my last day of drinking on July 20th, uh, 2014, um, that, that my, you know, what was left of my ego that was still connected to reality was trying to save me basically by unveiling, you know, um, where I really was. And, you know, the, I love the word of the, an apocalypse, right? Um, we tend to think of that in big, you know, catastrophic revelation level type experiences or events, but an apocalypse is really just an unveiling, right? It's an uncovering of what really is. And um, every addict who gets sober usually has one or maybe even several of these apocalyptic moments where they just can't hide anymore. And the running and the lying and all of that just has to come to an end. Um, and that's what happened. And so I had a real choice to make that night of, you know, I could have doubled down and run away or done something even stupider. Um, or I could face who I had become and decide to turn to, you know, to God and to see what he could do with me. Um, and so that's what I did. Um, and that was the beginning of my journey, at least in terms of AA. I actually went to a meeting the very next day. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. How does your family respond or friends? Um, well, differently. 
depending on the level of connection that we had and or the level of proximity they had to my uh, destruction. You know, I, some people in my life um, have taken a very long time to uh, forgive me or to come around or to see things differently and other people very quickly, you know. Mm. And one of the interesting things, and just as a tangent, I'll make a comment about this, is that, um, you know, they say when you go through the program and you do your amends, so that's step nine, or step eight is where you make your list of the people who you feel like you should make amends to, and step nine is where you actually go to do it. Um, one of the things that a good sponsor will do with a sponsee is really coach them on, A, like in everything, this is not about you. Like when you make amends, it's not about you seeking forgiveness or getting something out of these people or feeling good even about the experience. Like if you're going to make amends, it has to be completely others focused mm-hmm. um, where you go with the kind of abandon that you would go into a bar and drink, try to drink yourself to death with. You're going to take that energy, that desire for connection, right? That desire for the oblivion of your ego. And you're going to actually point that in a much more specific way towards not trying to make things better, but simply by owning what happened, being as honest as you can about it, and then giving the other person the freedom to respond to that in any way that they see fit. And it was really interesting for me. I, you know, would go into a lot of different amends sessions because I would set up appointments and everything and, you know, all of that to make sure that we had space for these conversations. And, you know, some, some of these conversations were very brief, five minutes, very quick, you know, Um, some people I thought who would have really been mad and upset at me turned out to have already forgiven me or have already you know things were different than I thought they'd be and then in other cases it was the other way around where that making space and being open enough to being willing to take the like a real response and not have it be you know uh, coerced brought out all kinds of issues um and I you know those are super hard conversations to have and they're very difficult and there's a reason why they you wait until step nine to even do them because there's a certain level of maturity that you have to get to to even do have them so that they are helpful um but I gotta say I mean I, it's amazing truly how transformative that is um and not just for the other people but obviously for yourself particularly too mm. uh, you know as you give into that environment selflessly you you get 10 times more in return um so yeah yeah i'm curious for those who um maybe aren't familiar really with the 12 steps and what they are um, would you name at least a few of the steps maybe pick some of the ones that were most powerful for you and why they were so powerful because yeah for anybody who either knows people who are addicts or notice addictive tendencies in themselves sometimes it is hard to recognize why something that looks kind of like a spiritual or self-growth program would help with something that people think of as a disease right no that's a good that's a really good question and i will say you know there are different levels of opinions about especially on the disease question right Mm -hmm. um you know there whether it's a physical true physical allergy let's say um, or whether it's just a spiritual or mental um you know issue i happen to be of the camp that says that it's yes (laughs) it's 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 everything right because everything that involves a human person at that level of of depth is something that's hard to parse through. And quite frankly, the dualism of seeing it as one versus the other, I think is a mistake anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly with substance abuse, because it is so, um, you know, take, eat, this is my body. I mean, th- anything that intimate into you is something that transcends those kinds of dualities. But um, um, but to go back to your, I guess, to go back to your first question for a minute, um, you know, it's, it's hard to pick. I mean, honestly, like as somebody who really loves the program, there's such beauty and depth and riches to be had. Uh, it's almost like asking somebody what their favorite Bible verse is. I mean, maybe you have one, right? But for a lover of the Bible, the whole thing is just a love letter that you can barely, you can, you just want to hug the whole thing. It's really, yeah. But, but on that note, I'm mean, just as a, from a practical point of view, um, I'm a real big fan of the fourth step, which is to, um, you know, making a searching and fearless moral inventory. Mm-hmm. which and if you think about the 12 steps they're kind of bracketed in like the first three the middle three or there's like a like the first three and then the, the ones that come after that um where there's everything follows a pattern um and one of the brilliant things about the program honestly is that um you know to somebody who has been a christian for so long it intuitively is like christianity but stripped of all of its accruedments right there's no liturgy there's no dogma per se even the higher power concept is basically where God himself becomes anonymous in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, Mm. Um, right? He's not very interested necessarily in naming himself and he's willing to let people find him, right? Um, According to quote, their own understanding, Mm. which um, 
again, and is a beautiful thing, right? Because there's, if there's one thing an addict is, he's stubborn and he doesn't want people telling him what to do or what to think. Um, and so the program in its wisdom allows the addict to come and meet God literally exactly where they are. Um, and so that's a beautiful thing. But, but the fourth step is in, is, is where the real work begins, right? Because the first three are all about admitting your powerlessness, turning to a higher power and, and believing that you can actually be brought out of sanity. And those are all prerequisites really for being uh, a, you know, a spiritually alive person, quite frankly. Um, but they're not really the work, right? Those are all just prerequisites where your soil, the soil of your heart is being tilled. Um, some core truths that have to carry you for the rest of your life have to be really installed. Um, and again, a, a good sponsor really works with you to make sure that you're not just rushing through the steps, um, that you're building something organically. Um, you know, you don't want to spend too long, you know, you know, you don't want to be in the program for 10 years and still be on step three in that way, unless you need to be right. And a good sponsor and like any good spiritual director really discerns like how quickly or how fast do we need to really go through these for you to get on the path that you need to be on. Um, but again, I keep interrupting myself. Step four is um, where you start to, you make that searching and searching and fearless moral inventory. Um, and I love both of those words searching, right? Because you're searching in some ways for God, quite frankly, um, you know, one of the amazing things about the program, and I think this is true fairly universally, is that, um, you know, like Jacob of the Old Testament who wrestled with God and was renamed Israel, right? He who, is, he who wrestles with God, um, the, the addict comes into the program and when they start doing the work, they find that, they're, that God is the adversary they've been wrestling with the whole time. You know, God's the, the, the person at the bottom of the bottle, essentially, right? That they've been trying to drink themselves towards. Um, but he is an adversary in a certain way. There's a certain sense of contentious, uh, almost, um, well, fatherly discipline, I would almost say, where, okay, you've, you've admitted you're, that you're powerless and you've actually turned to me and asked for help. Um, now the way in which you, we move forward is for you to actually take a real look at yourself, the way that I see you, right? And so that searching a fearless moral, moral inventory isn't necessarily a cataloging of all of your character defects, and although you do get to that in step seven, but it's really fundamentally a recognition that you're loved, that you're actually accepted for exactly who you are right now, right? In, in whatever condition you're in, in the meeting or in just in your life. Um, and that, you know, before you can make amends, before you can start developing a life of conscious meditation and prayer, or, and quite frankly, being of service to anyone, which is step 12, um, you need to have, you need to figure out who you are and you need to actually love who you are right now before you do anything else. Um, and so anyway, so that inventory is kind of a double-edged sword where it's an inventory of, of sins and, and character defects and of figuring out why is it that you're in a meeting? Why is it that your life is in shambles, right? You need to face that, but you're never going to be able to do the work. You're not going to have the courage to face those kinds of calamities unless you have a real um, basic grounding in the love that God has for you and that you really do have for yourself. You just don't know it. Mm. Um, I think the addict is... Um, and I found this to be very profound almost as I've been in meetings uh, over the years is just how spiritually uh, almost electric an addict can be. If you can scratch past the surface and get past some of the surface things, um, they're hungry, they're thirsty and in a literal, in a literal way, right? Maybe for substances, but that's not what they're really hungry for. They're hungry for God. Mm. And, um, and so being able to ch channel that, uh, I don't know if it's a natural disposition or a spiritual gift. Um, but I found that, you know, the addicts that I've worked with and that I've been, you know, around have been, um, yes, some of the most broken people I've ever met and some of the most, you know, hurting, suffering people, but they, very often they tend to be some of the people who, um, you know, they have a big inventory of gifts and a big inventory of sins, right? They're, they're just large, larger than life. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I think we talked about this before, but I, I wrote a book called Spiritual Wanderlust and speaking about that kind of thirst or that longing for just something like we don't even know what it is. It's just something with a capital S, you know, and um, you you could call it God, but it, it that word just doesn't feel big enough sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I to see that inner restlessness that we all have. I mean, I think particularly you find it in, you know, the, the addicts with a capital A, but I think we all have some of that to some extent, you know, For just sure. um, the, the discontent we have with kind of the normal everyday life and a longing for 
what? <laughs> is it right. greatness? Is it fulfillment? Is it happiness? Like none of those things really quite fit. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the addict in some ways is given a real gift by being an addict because that thirst or that hunger is is so obvious, right? It's mm. and it's inescapable. It's yeah, it's probably ruined your life. But it also then gives you an opportunity to to maybe pivot and, and direct it in, in the ways in which it should go. But if there's no there's no reason to assume that that doesn't apply to everyone, right? Mm. I mean, and I've been a big proponent for a long time that that the model of AA in some ways has put the church to shame, quite frankly. That AA is doing the work that the church it should be doing, and in some cases does, but uh, you know, the track record of AA in terms of the amount of money, how little money they need and little resources that they demand. And then, you know, the amount of transformation and healing that happens is just, um, it's nothing short of uh, remarkable. And I think the church has a lot to learn from the simplicity, I think maybe of the model, um, yeah. like the purpose of AA is really no different than the purpose of the church. Um, the church, I think has just gotten distracted. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I have a um, priest friend who's been sober for, I don't know what, 12, maybe 15 years, um, but who has said the same thing. He's like, 12 step wisdom, man, like our churches need to be a lot more like that and more of a support group mm -hmm. you know, where we really do the inner work of transformation rather than just, you know, a little activity we do on Sundays and check off right. the box and I feel like I did my Christian duty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because really, I mean, we're all addicts, right, to something. And maybe yeah. it's visible and obvious and whether it's shopping or, or TV watching or whatever, right? And it, we, everybody can pick a one, one or two things in their life that they are overindulging in. Um, but even more profoundly, I think we're all, I mean, from a Christian point of view, we're all addicted to sin. And even from a non-Christian point of view, we're addicted to our own way of thinking. Mm. We're addicted to the patterns of our life. We're addicted to our ego um, and the story that it tells us about who we are and what, and what the world is. And those are all things that, and kind of models of living that would do well to be put through the ringer of the 12 steps, as it were, um, to have some of those assumptions challenged and those patterns uh, reworked and 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 again to do it in a community type setting where people are together talking about um, you know who they are and where they'd like to go and what's holding them back and what they're excited about and those are all the things that are talked about in an AA meeting um, you know it's your we talk about you bring your or you talk about your experience strength and hope is the way we say it mm. um, so you, you're basically just telling stories you're telling a story of who you used to be and what you've been doing and where you'd hope to go and you know, that's really, for me, no different than, you know, any religious kind of uh, gathering, right, is that we're, whether it's through liturgy or just in general, right, we're telling a story of, um, you know, who we are as a people and where we're at currently and where we'd like to go. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that's the way we not only hold on and, ad and adhere to the traditions of, um, you know, of the past that still serve us, and it way it's a way also for us to bond together over a common story, right? Because that story of that Exodus story, let's say, of like you know tyranny and then exile and and uh, wandering and then eventual promised land. I mean, it's the story of humanity, um, and that's again not something that's um, the purview of the addict, right? It's it's a common sort of um, uh, what's the word? Well, it's an inheritance, I guess of what all we what we all share of, of, of you know as being human beings yeah yeah absolutely and i think we all so long for just raw authentic conversations uh it's so hard to find that in i mean especially like white middle class american <laughs> society where we're just polite you know i grew up in the midwest we all just have nice kind of polite conversations nobody really um airs dirty laundry you know mm -hmm. i mean we might we might politely <laughs> gossip by you know saying like would you pray for jane she's got a you know <laughs> like, right. tell you all her dirt so i but end it with like pray for her but bless her heart right right bless her heart <laughs> um but yeah to actually do that real inner work like i had a friend who went to a men's retreat and he was like men's retreat this sounds like <laughs> the stupidest thing in the world and he was like this was the most amazing, like raw, authentic that I have ever seen men be together. You know, normally 
it was so hard to find again, you know, kind of a Midwestern society, like men don't have emotions, you know, or, (laughs) um, that kind of stereotype. And for him to go and have this place where he's like, we just like threw it all on the table and, you know, talked about what we struggled with. And, um, I don't, I feel closer to these men after one weekend than I do to many of my longtime friends. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 The other thing that stuck out to me when you were talking was um, how how we're all addicts, but also this concept of sin, because I think sin in so many ways is just the spiritual religious term for coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like True. we got pain. We all have hurts, um, wounds, whether or not we want to admit it. Um, or even just things that make us feel uncomfortable. Like, I feel slightly anxious. I'm going to go like just zone out with Netflix for Mm -hmm. four hours, you know, and that's, that's a coping mechanism. And sometimes those things are okay, but yeah, just like a glass of wine with dinner is okay. But when it starts to rule your life, um, that's when it really starts to like, we have to look and say, am I in control here? Or like, is this ruling or is this in control? Is my Netflix tendency is my tendency to gossip, my tendency to like need to be in control and to know what's going on in everybody's lives or to tell people what I think. Or, you know, I think that was the big thing for me when I first got introduced to the 12 step kind of process um, through codependency um, Mm -hmm. and leaving the convent and fortunately having, well, at least one friend who is really, I mean, she was into CODA, Codependence Anonymous, um, and recognizing how much Christianity, um, at least the culture that we have around it, often promotes codependency. <laughs> and yes. um, it's it was so eye-opening for me. Like the first time this friend shared, I was complaining about some sister in the convent. I was still over in Rome at the time. And, you know, like sister so-and-so, and can you believe? And, you know, and I was just kind of foaming at the mouth. And uh, she turned and looked to me and she's like, what is it in you that gets so upset about sister so-and-so? You Beautiful. know, and I was like, me? I, I, I right. mean, I was just really taken aback. Like, I mean, obviously what she did is objectively obnoxious, you know, but to recognize like, oh, maybe there's something that's getting hooked in me. And why can't I just kind of brush it off? Like, "Hmm, okay, well, that was kind of obnoxious of her. Right. Okay. Right. (laughs) To move on. Um, Yeah. And so learning how to work those 12 steps, I think, are really that process of releasing our clenched fists on reality, that grip grasp trying to control Mm -hmm. that's that's how i think of it that's a great great story too because um yeah learning to really listen to the people around you uh non-judgmentally but with an open heart is something that we just really aren't taught really in this culture and in life in general um and especially in this i think in this country you know we're just we're so individualistic even in our spiritual lives that You know, when we talk about even working a program like AA, there's this sort of idea that you just hunger down in a room and read all the books and go to meetings alone and somehow it just will all work out. And that's not the way it works at all. You know, you get a sponsor and you join a community and you start listening to the stories of the people in the group. And, you know, a lot of times groups will say, you know, if you're first of all, if you're, you know, if you're if you're still high or on a substance, we love that you're here, but you can't talk today. Right. And then over time, there's this invitation. Um to start speaking, but mostly to listen. And I think it's in the hearing of the stories. And, and I know for me, you know, sitting and, you know, with my ego telling me that I was better than these people or smarter than them, or that I wasn't as broken and why am I here? And right, all of the excuses would just start pouring in and over and over again, the admonition through the literature and with my sponsor and just, and just even my own heart was, you need to learn to just sit and listen to the judgments, the opinions, the stories, the just the existence of other people Mm. right and to just dwell in the fact that you are not the center of the universe and that other people's stories not only matter they might matter maybe even more than yours at least today right when it's their turn to speak um and so to the the humbling nature of that kind of where you're sitting in these meetings and learning organically um that yeah you might get your three minutes to share your story and hopefully it helps someone else but 
you know, you're going to get such an amazing gift by just being present to other people mm. um, that that's going to be part of what heals you of the addiction. Because mm. one of the things that you do when you're drinking is you actually don't want other people. That's why you drink. You know, that's why you use is that you'd rather just be, you know, protected in many ways. At least that's what you think in this sort of self-isolated bubble where it's just you and the drug. Mm. Um, and you, that doesn't work. You need other people and you need their stories and we, you need to hear them because, well, for a lot of reasons, but the other reason too is that other story, other people's stories are also your own. They may differ in the very specific details and all of that. But again, going back to the Exodus analogy, you know, we're all we're all here on a journey, and none of us are going to make it out of here alive. Um, and it would be better for all of us if we just stopped for a minute and faced that, and decided that how do we want to live in the event that you know the inevitability of the fact that this world is not our home and we have work to do and if we did it together and really listen to one another we might make a lot more progress yeah which is scary though i mean it's scary <laughs> to like it's... be vulnerable and to open yourself to others or even if you're not sharing of your own story yet just to make space for others and to make yes. enough space interiorly to say like maybe what they have to say is even more valuable or yep. um that I could possibly learn from every human person on this planet, no matter how um, enlightened I think I am. <laughs> yeah, well, that which that the things that you need to learn are the things you don't know. <laughs> and so, you know, even me sitting behind, it's like, I know all the stuff in these books, but you know, I mean, one of the stories I like to tell now, although it was super embarrassing at the time was the fact that, you know, at the height of my drinking, I was teaching a catechism class at the local church on, early church history and asceticism and so the incredible irony right is that here i am presenting myself as as someone who knows something about the spiritual life or about the church and mm. you know i'm drinking a i'm drinking out of a out of a can on my way to teach the class right so the disconnect in my own heart of my public persona let's say or the knowledge that i thought i knew and who i really was in my actions was profound mm. um and you know that's that it's hard right when you when you face those kinds of things where yes it isn't just the things that i know or whatever it's i have to actually embody this in a way that might be painful right i might have to sit in a meeting and listen to someone else um and and maybe what they're saying doesn't help me or it isn't you know but even then it still is helpful right because you get to still be present to someone else in their pain and their confusion or their joy whatever it happens to be um and so, yeah, for me, that the act of I think that was that was the best part of the meetings and still is, quite frankly, is the realization that I'm not the center of the universe and the the burden that's lifted from me in being able to, you know, weep with those who weep and exult and and be joyful with those who are joyful. And whether it's somebody getting their first, you know, 60 day coin or whether it's somebody who is back in the rooms after their fourth relapse, you know, like it doesn't the details, of course, matter with for that particular person and the way we minister to them. But again, it's this is all of our story, right? We, mm. we, we fall down and we get up and we fall down and we get up and that's the life. That's the spiritual life. Mm. Um, and again, like you were saying, like being able to just be with one another as we do that, where we're going to fall and it's in inevitable. And in fact, it's necessary, quite frankly. Mm. Um, but then we have to rise and we have to do that first of all, because we choose to do that. Nobody can make, nobody can force you into a room. I mean, they can send you there for a court order or whatever. Right. But if you're really there to do the work, you have to choose to go. Uh, but then as soon as you go, you're surrounded by people who are going to love you and support you and accept you all the way. Mm. Um, and again, you know, to me, that feels like the church or at least a church of some kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what really um, engenders compassion is being able to be present. First of all, acknowledge your own stuff, your pains, your flaws, your weaknesses, and how beloved you are. I love how you pointed that out in step four, because I don't think necessarily taking a searching moral inventory is um, what people think of as like, you know, oh, obviously that leads to me feeling deeply loved. <laughs> you know, like that feels very contradictory. Like it feels much yeah. more like, okay, judgmental God, here we go again, you know, <laughs> like big yeah. man in the sky, ready to just condemn me for all yep. the ways that I've messed up. Um, and I I'm curious, like, well, whatever, I'll just loop back to that. I'm just <laughs> okay. curious, like how you would connect those two, like, okay, so you've made this like fearless inventory of like all your stuff. Mm -hmm. How does that lead to it? <laughs> like, 
I am deeply loved and I love myself. How does that come about? Because that feels like opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, you know, to be honest, I mean, there are people who in the program who do struggle with step four and have to be on it for quite some time. Uh, because you're right, it does take an enormous amount of courage to do that at the level to which you need to do it if you're somebody who's in the program. Um, because inevitably, right, you have a multitude of, you know, you've, you've caused mayhem usually in your life if you're in the rooms of AA. Um, and so you have a lot to you have a lot to look at. And that's hard. That's really, really hard. But the one thing I would say, and kind of going back to the beginning, is that there's a reason why that's not the first step. Um, it's not the first thing where you walk through the doors and you immediately have to catalog everything or you know proclaim it. It's you know you start fundamentally from a position of powerlessness, so that even so that no matter what you do, the rest of the program it's always grounded in step one, which is and that sounds hard and it is really difficult, right? But it's the it's absolutely the spiritual foundation of the entire thing, which is that in some ways, right, this isn't actually your responsibility. It's not your job to do all the work. And one of the things too, that I found with addicts, and I, I personally feel this way, is that like, we just take so much responsibility we, for everything, right? And that's partly maybe why we use is because we just need a break, right, from our own ego, um, telling us that somehow everything is our fault, or that, that inner critic that demands justice for everyone and everything all the time. Um, and so to give that up, to start the program with saying, nope, I am powerless over this substance. I am powerless over my life. My life's unmanageable. And I'm done trying to do anything more about this the way I've been doing it. Mm-hmm. And so the freedom that pours over you when you can really do that, um, it just, like I said, it just carries you almost through the rest of the program. Because whether it's making a moral inventory, whether it's making amends with your spouse who wants to divorce you, or whether it's whatever, right? You have a lot of hard work ahead of you, but you'll be able to face it because you've given up control. You, you fundamentally have decided to let God in and that's steps two and three, right? Where you, you've admitted that you're powerless and you've really decided to make a very conscious and very, um, you know, wholehearted attempt to give your life over to, to a higher power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, to me, that's like the a microcosm of the entire spiritual life, right? Is that powerlessness is just the admit, admitting of reality. It's really not even, I mean, it's scary, but it's not anything different than what's true. It's just truth, which is that you're powerless over most things, um, maybe almost over everything to some extent. Mm. Um, and then, so again, so when you go into the, the the meat of step four, you're carrying with you that the love and the freedom, right, to do that. Because even as you do it, you know that you're powerless over making a good fourth step. And you know, we tell you know people in the program all the time, uh, you know, nothing has to be perfect. Thinking things have to be perfect is part of the addict mindset. Mm. And it's much, much better to just start, like make, just do something, make a, make an attempt, right? And then you give it over and you say that you're powerless and then you come back to it. And again, if you have a good sponsor, if you have a good community, right? That's the way you, you till that soil so that you have the, the balance of I'm powerless and I can't do anything, but I also, am an, I'm accountable, right? I have someone to which I'm working with and I'm going, and they're going to push me. And I, again, I see the parallels in the church in terms of whether that's a father confessor or a spiritual director um, or somebody that you're working with very closely where you're unveiling, like in Ephesians, you know, you're, you're confessing your sins one to another, right? And you're really sharing your heart so that you have someone who can walk alongside you and can point out, you did a good job there and you should like, you should let yourself go. Like, don't push yourself too hard. Or maybe on this one, nah, you're still hiding something. You're still afraid. We need to dig into this, right? And being able to discern which of those it is that you need. Do you need a little grace or do you need a little, you know, a little uh, person or um, not judgment, but a little yeah. encouragement, right? A little coaching. Kick in the rear. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, so, yeah. So to me on this side of things, um, I mean, it's always hard to do that work. I mean, don't get me wrong. And there's always things about the, the fourth step that you always come back to. Um, and one thing I guess I would like to say too, is that, um, you know, there's a sense in which the 12 steps are almost like a spiral dynamic because you go, each one of those things is you could just live in one step for the rest of your life and just let it flower, right? Mm-hmm. Or you could march through them linearly um, or you can cycle through them over and over and over again, right? And I think anybody who's been in the program long enough will, you know, they've done they've done every step at least once and they've done all of them maybe several times, um, but they're always working on one. And so the work that you did prior as you went through all of them now starts to inform the way maybe you come back to a fourth step, mm-hmm. so, right? So again, again, in the spirit of not having to be, uh, we seek progress, not perfection. Uh, there's no reason why you can't come back and do a step four and do it at a new level of consciousness, maybe with new inputs, um, maybe with a better grounding in who you really are and in the love that God has for you. 
um, so that maybe you can see something this time that you didn't before or maybe couldn't face before because it was just too deep or too much. Mm -hmm. um, so, right, we're never done, but, um, you know, as far, like Aslan says, right, it's farther up and further in. I mean, there's, right. there's no end to the work. And so that's exciting in a certain kind of way, right? And again, I think for the addict, there's something that's deeply, profoundly um, healing about that idea that um, the infinity to which we constantly were looking in substances really can be found in the work that that's really what we have been maybe hoping for was that the communion that we could have with God and the connection that we could have with other people and that our life might be directed in a way that's truly of value and of service, right. Um, can be found and it doesn't have to be, it can't be found in substances. Mm. Um, hmm. I am struck by, I mean, I've heard before the line progress, not perfection, but I think that's something that uh, we always need to be reminded of. And yes. I'm sure like, you know, basically all the steps are always things that we need to be reminded of, as you are mentioning here, you know, that spiral model, which I really appreciate, you know, I, I think earlier on in my spiritual growth, I'm like, oh yeah, I've learned how to trust, like <laughs> right. I got this down, <laughs> you know? Right. And it's like, you spiral around to that same place and it's like, yep. oh, okay, nope, this is a totally new scenario. <laughs> I have never had to trust like this before. Like, why are you making me do this? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so similarly, that progress, not perfection, it's, I, um, <laughs> I remember trying to essentially kill my perfectionistic part in, in college, my Good achiever luck with part. That. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, essentially trying to use your ego to defeat your ego, like right. we're going to squash that and shove it down and whatever. And I mean, on the one hand, I think I did receive a lot of um, freedom from mm -hmm. at least the ways that it used to be expressed, right? So in high school, I remember my perfectionism was mostly in academics and I, I would pour myself into, you know, and I received a lot of um, enjoyment from the whole process. I enjoyed my studies, um, but there certainly was like a, yeah, perfectionism that would pop out there. And I remember in college, um, I would intentionally, like when we get tests back from the professor, you know, he'd pass the exams back out and everybody's like, oh, what'd you get? What'd you get? And I wouldn't even look at mine. I would just shove mine in my bag because I knew that I was often the smartest person in the class and I didn't want to have my ego any, I was just like, nope, not even going to touch it. Not going to go there. Um, and so that helped, you know, for, that I wasn't like look at me right? You know? like, so that was a good thing, but it was funny how that like seeped out in other areas like mm -hmm. well i'm gonna be the best gosh darn person in ministry just watch like i'm gonna go talk to all the homeless people i'm gonna remember <laughs> everybody's name you know and those right. are good things it's not like those desires were bad in and of themselves mm -hmm. but it's just interesting how um in those areas how those um tendencies of ourselves that want to achieve or perform or whatever it is that underneath we're probably coping for something like mm -hmm. why, why do you need to try so hard Cal. right <laughs> like right what's what's driving that like why mm -hmm. why do you need to go like love every person on campus and it, and honestly it wasn't until my illness where i was like bedridden for all those 18 months that when all that was stripped away that suddenly it was like yeah who yeah. am i if i can't do those things right and right. i think that's usually for many of us where that happens is when some big crisis strips away you know the possibility of even fulfilling all of those for um, sure tendencies or coping mechanisms or addictions or whatever they are right life comes crumbling yeah we have to hit our rock bottom right Oof. whatever that ends up being you know mm -hmm. and it's different for every person that's uh and it's fascinating almost the way that that is you know why is it that some people like from an addiction perspective why is it that some people have to lose their house and their spouse and their life or they have to go to prison or you know whatever the story is right and then there are other people who don't right it doesn't get that bad um, it's truly a mystery. And for all of us, right? It's what, at what point does our ego finally butt up against God's love, right? And finally gives way. <clears throat> um, and you can't plan for it, right? Which I think is why I really love the progress, not perfection, because the perfection model is the one that says, well, I'm just going to orchestrate this. I'm going to love all the people and, and right, whatever that story is that you tell yourself. But you never get around to asking yourself, well, what's the end? When, when am I done? Or when have I 
when have I actually done God's will, you know, on earth as it is in heaven? Like, at what point am I going to be free of the compulsion? Mm. To feel I need to do something more and better and, and all of that. Um, when do I get to rest? Right. Um, and, you know, you, when you're in the middle of that, you never ask those questions because there's there's just too much whatever enjoyment or pressure to just keep performing. Um, and we live in such a performance based culture. I think it's gotten worse actually over time. Mm. The, the compulsions that we all have, the stories that we tell ourselves about how good we good we have to be, whatever that definition is. Um, and again, it you know it goes back to to that just authenticity of like th- those all might be beautiful, good things, and maybe you're called to some or even all of them. Um, but a, it won't be in the way you think, first of all, and b, it's um, it's an open question as to whether that's really who you are or is that the story that you know your parents or your church or your culture or whatever mm-hmm. have told you about what being a good person or a good Christian or whatever. Um, and, you know, so again, that sense of power, the, our life has become unmanageable, right? As we say in the first step, that applies to so many things, not just substance abuse. That implies to, you know, most of us, I think if we were honest, would say most or all of my life is unmanageable at that level. I'm running around doing so much um, like Mary and Martha. I'm not really sitting at Jesus's feet. I'm not content to just be who I am for even just 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, like where it's just incredible how much mm-hmm. we are running from ourselves yeah. because we're afraid, right? Because we're afraid of what we'll find. But Yeah. And I, I feel like that's probably a good test. <laughs> you know, right. it's just like, are you okay stopping everything? Right. You know, because for most of us, it doesn't happen until we are forced to, you know, I find right. it's a lot of the, um, you know, it's either some sort of like crisis of health or I'm retiring or empty nesting. And suddenly yes. I don't have my 35, 40 year long career to rest my vestiges upon, or I don't yep. have my kids to focus on or whatever it is. And when your roles are suddenly stripped away and your kind of compulsion to do or help or serve or whatever the compulsion is. Well, now what? And now what? Who yeah. am I? What does yeah. that even mean about me or <laughs> right. what meaning my life has and all of those questions that bubble up inevitably? Yes. There's yeah. in, in the program, there's a reason that step 12, um, it, you know, where we take this message out other alcoholics and it's much more of a service oriented sort of step. It's the last step. Mm-hmm. And I think for some people, particularly the doers, right? The people who are uh, twos on the Enneagram, for example, or just people in, you know, people who have that personality type where they like to be active and they like to be productive. Um, that's a real shock, right? So that they're, that they're not just placed in another program that tells them that they have to do a bunch of things to be, to be different or whatever. And that, no, you need, you have a lot of inner work to do and a lot of silence to keep, uh, and a lot of inventory to take, right. And some amends to make, right. You have some work. And then once you've done that, then maybe you'll be of use. To the, to the world in a way that where you actually get to be yourself and other people get to actually see you and, and actually benefit from the gifts of, be, of you being yourself. Um, because if you're not yourself, then you'll tornado through people's lives and yeah, you know, serve them, but, and maybe do some good almost inadvertently, but it's mm-hmm. amazing how, yeah, that tends not to be the case. Um, yeah. Yeah. How we always bring our stuff, whatever we're doing, even if we have great intentions of helping others. I mean, um, I'm sure almost everyone listening has been on the receiving end of people who mean well, but you know, are like pathological helpful helpers, you know, like they're just, uh, trying to give you advice that you didn't ask for. And you're like, Whoa, Hey, you know, and then they might get offended when, you know, and that's often a sign of codependence. Like, why won't you take my help? Dang it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and then I'm resentful that, you know, you won't receive my help. It's like, who is this for in the first place? Exactly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but it's funny, those those circles that we get stuck in, you know, those patterns. And I guess that's probably a good shorthand for addiction. (laughs) Yes. Well, and you mentioned resentment. And that, like, bar none, is absolutely at least from an, from an AA perspective, and I think a spiritual perspective, is the best bellwether to take in terms of an internal temperature of where your resentments are is where the, your work is. Mm. Right? And if you can't maintain peace in some scenario or with some relationship or whatever the case might be, then that's that resentment is poison. It really is spiritual poison because the resentment is 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 your ego's way of essentially not having you face the fact that you have work to do mm. and that you aren't willing to accept things actually as they are and people as they are 
Um, that's another big part of the program is the addict is very bad at, at accepting reality. We don't mm -hmm. like things the way they are. And, and part of that is, again, I think comes from that spiritual sort of desire or intuition that that things are terrible and they could be way better. <laughs> right. And there's some truth in that. But it but the, the paradox is that the only way things ever get better, the way the only way that they're uh, resurrected is through the cross. Right. Things have to die and they have to be what they are in that death. Um, where again, you're powerless and there is a sense in which God is the one that's in control. God is the one that's allowing things to, to die so that then what's good and, and true and beautiful can be resurrected. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not your job to do that, right? But your job is to be a witness to it, is to be present to it. And maybe if you know, you're know you lucky, God will ask you to participate in some way in it. I and mean, I think that would be the design, right? Is we, want, we all want to participate in the resurrection of the world um, and in the transformation of, of everything. Um, and the, I think the addict feels that calling uh, in a really profound way. And unfortunately, right, or maybe fortunately, hard to know, in the long eternal sense, um, finds all kinds of substitutes in, for, instead of being willing to just be present to reality mm. and being willing to say, I don't like the, that this is happening, but I'm going to say that what is is perfectly exactly in accordance with what God wants right now. And maybe that's for reasons I'll never understand. And that's, that's okay. Hard. Like, it's, so you live in the mystery, right? The darkness of saying, I'm, I am powerless over my life, including this reality that maybe that I don't like very much. Um, and then you just take that to God, right? And take that to the, to the people that you work with. And, um, and maybe it becomes, again, part of the program of the inventory that you take is that I'm super resentful about this, right? And then there's, that's just, it's showing you another part of your life that you let go of. Um, there's an analogy from golf, which I've always loved, which is that when you hold a golf club, you're you're supposed to hold it tight enough that it doesn't fly out of your hands, but loose enough to where you're you are flexible and that you can adjust as you're swinging, right? And I think that that's a perfect analogy for the work that we do, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to let go, right? It's not an ego disillusion, um, disillusionment. It's not a, a, a letting go into chaos or nihilism, right? But it's also being willing to hold things lightly and letting God do the work. Mm -hmm. uh, because the swing, you may start as you swing, right, to go in one direction. But the, if you're going to hit the ball, if the goal is to hit the ball, then you might have to adjust. And you might have to be willing to do that. And you can't if you're holding on too tight. Mm. Um, and the addict is, is somebody who's always holding on too tight to the wrong things, usually. And that's why yeah. they're in right? I know. I know. And once I think we get accustomed to that somatic sensation of that clenching, grasping, being mm -hmm. too tight, when you realize when you're there, like... Oh, hey, <laughs> like I need to loosen my grip a little bit. Like this right. is getting a little intense. And resentment, I'm... resentment has great payoffs in the short term. It feels mm -hmm. powerful, right? It feels like you are reacting to something with the right level of vengeance or whatever the case right. might be, right? It's very, but it's Turkish delight it, mm -hmm. from a C.S. Lewis perspective, right? It's, it's toxic because it goes in and it's very sweet, but it's, it's absolutely, you know, cal it has no calories and just makes you sick. And it makes you a monster fundamentally because every bite just makes you angry. Mm -hmm. And that anger, um, you know, I, I've loved the fact that of kind of thinking about anger as just repressed shame. It's right. It's the being ashamed that you're in your ego state or not doing something more about this particular thing. Mm -hmm. um, and letting go of that anger is means facing the shame. It means entering into it. Um, there's a saying in uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church that we, we have to bear a little shame to be able to to walk with Christ and and you know a little shame right you don't you can't take it all on right but you have to be willing to be in the present moment to be in the shame that is there right the shame that my body doesn't work the way I like it to or I don't look the way I you know or I'm not in this station of life or you know all the catalog of hundreds of ways in which we can be resentful about the reality in which we live um, but that's the shame that if we faced it and accepted it right um, yeah. you just that's where the, that's where the weaknesses, right, of our life, as 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 uh, Saint Paul writes, you know, that the, the grace is sufficient in that weakness, and that again, like so many things, the paradoxes of that by accepting the weaknesses and the reality of your life is actually where all the power is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
I find one of the threads through all of this, through 12-step work or spiritual practice, is just the willingness to feel your feelings, which yeah. feel, I mean, if you had told me that like 15 years ago, I probably would have <laughs> thought that was just like fluffy nonsense, yeah, like, I okay, yeah, whatever, like, <laughs> go take your help, self-help stuff somewhere else. But like, now I'm like, oh my gosh, that is one of the deepest realities and like yeah. hey younger kelly like <laughs> what was it that you weren't able to sit with in that like what what made you uncomfortable and can you just be present to the fact that this sounds a little fluffy and why do you not like fluffy stuff you know mm -hmm. just anything could be a, a starting point a trailhead to that inner inquiry of like whoa what's what's going on in there right like, why am i feeling so uncomfortable and why do i have to go like grab my phone and start scrolling or why do I have to go grab my substance or phone a friend or right. whatever it is. Um, there's so much happening interiorly and the more that we become self-aware and um, expand our capacity to hold all of these things. And sometimes it's particularly important to be able to hold them with others that can expand mm -hmm. our, our window of tolerance, you know, because sometimes it is yes. really hard. Like life is hard. Yeah. Reality can be really difficult and painful you know i mean i think over these past two years in particular we've all oh, yeah you know got our noses shoved into it and so to <laughs> be sure. in that together yeah I mean, we need each other now more than ever probably oof, yeah or maybe we're just now realizing that we've always needed each other this much but we've yeah. been we've been told stories that make us think that that's not true but yeah absolutely so I think we have time for one more question sure. for people who are curious about how 12 step wisdom might help them. What would be one or two resources that you would point them toward? That is a good question. Um, well, I'll caveat this by saying it depends, right? Because it really is person specific. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's say but, folks who don't necessarily have like kind of the capital A addictions of like alcohol, drugs, whatever, but you know, the, the casual viewer who's like, maybe there's something in this for me. I can be kind of controlling sometimes. Right. <clears throat> well, I mean, I probably would point them um, probably to Richard Rohr's book, uh, Breathing Underwater, um, partly because it's short and it's easily digestible. Um, and it's not overly academic by any stretch. It's very tightly focused on the steps and on, on how they actually practically work. Um, so that would be one for sure that I probably recommend. Um, Leslie Jameson also wrote a memoir um, that I found particularly profound. Um, and that's more, you know, if you like memoirs, that's definitely one that's really good um, that goes through her story of addiction, essentially. Um, you know, really, honestly, even dabbling a little bit in the big book, the, you know, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, there's, there's almost something in it for everyone a little bit. Um, and so that's worth looking at. Um, there's a book by an Eastern Orthodox priest called uh, Steps of Transformation, which is quite good. And that's a little bit more, um, you know, focused and or, uh, focused on kind of the biblical tie-in and the kind of Christian tie-in uh, to the 12 steps. Um, so those are just some, I mean, there really are an amazing number of resources, honestly. Mm -hmm. And can someone who doesn't have, you know, an addiction to a particular substance go to any kind of 12-step groups or how does that work? Um, every group is a little different. Um, some are open and they'll even say this if you look them up. And that means they literally are open to the public and anybody can come. Some are closed, which means that you they only want people there who are kind of actively trying to be in recovery from an actual addiction. Um, some are men's only, some are women's only. So some of them, there are some groups that are structured in certain ways, but quite frankly, mo even the closed meetings are fairly, nobody's policing any of that. Nobody's asking, right? Um, and quite, and for the most part, anybody who's there is seen as a fellow traveler. Hmm. Um, and again, because the focus is so much on listening, um, it's not like a meeting where you'd be asked to do something or that you would, you know, and you can, even in a meeting where it's everyone shares, you can just pass. Um, it's not seen as a negative thing at all. And so I've actually brought friends of mine with me to meetings or invited family and who are just curious, right? They may not have an addiction or an actual substance issue, but they're just curious. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a fairly welcoming environment for the most part. Hmm. If you had to leave one piece of wisdom, advice, or even like one of your favorite slogans from 12 Steps, 
what would you like to leave with our audience? You know, it's funny. I, I hate slogans and I don't like cliches and I've learned to love them in, a, in AA. Um, and, and partly I feel like for me personally, it's a way of, um, it's a way of, of me of getting away from the addiction to words and ideas and, and abstract concepts, which in many ways for me were another addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, you know, I, there I am drinking on my way to teach classes about abstract ideas that I wasn't putting into practice. Right. And so AA has helped kind of like shatter that and has brought it back down. And so I've really fallen in love with the, the, um, the slogans because they, they really are ways for me to remember the basics, mm-hmm. um, which I feel like is important when you're in a program like this to not get lost uh, in the details and in something bigger, bigger than yourself. Right. And so for me, I would probably say one day at a time, is probably my favorite. Um, because, you know, like you said before, I mean, it, life is hard, right. There, there's a lot of suffering. Um, and a lot of us maybe haven't even faced the bulk of our suffering that we're here to suffer on this life, you know, in this life. Um, and so we need courage and we need, and the only way to do that is to remind ourselves that we are not here to solve tomorrow's problems or the problems from 10 years from now. Um, we're here to be present to today. And, you know, that is not only a bulwark against despair, um, but it's also an invitation to the joy of the present moment that I know that I'm asleep to most of the time, right? The fact that I'm sitting here talking to you, Kelly, uh, that I, you know, whatever the case might be, right? If I just sat here for five minutes and looked around this room, I, and if I really was present to it, um, I'd be so glad that I have today, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing about this that isn't filled with joy if I'm willing to see it. Um, and so that admonition to take one day at a time is so multi-purposed. Uh, or multi-purpose that it, like I said, like the slogan almost in some ways contains the whole program if you're willing to sit with mm. it. Um, yeah. so they're like little, they're like keys in the door. They help kind of, again, like connect you to the whole thing without having to reread a whole book or go to 20 meetings or whatever. So they give you a, um, like a foothold basically into the reality of the life that we're supposed to be living. Yeah. I like that. Well, thank you. I, I enjoyed, um, our own progress and not perfection that we had today (laughs) (laughs) and being present. So thank you so much for sharing your story and just your experiences of weaving that together with, with spirituality and our own um, path and growth. Thanks for having me. It was my, my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you everyone for listening in and joining us.